Hey, good morning, Walnut Grove campus. So good to see you, so good to be here. And for those of you who are also watching online, welcome. Um, yeah, thank you, Tim and Cindy and the, uh, the band for leading us this morning. Such a good reminder of how we, the church, are the recipients of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost Sunday, what a, what a good day to celebrate. And it's also the day, oh, did I tell you my name? I'm Janet. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I work with Tim and Matthew and others. And um, yeah, Matthew is actually in Calgary. He's performing a wedding for his niece. And so he'll be back next week. But it's just so great to be with you. Um, yeah, we are in our final week, our final Sunday, in our Abide Worship series, A People Apprentice to Jesus in Worship. And uh, as we wrap up this week, we are going to be looking at one um, very central, maybe to some of you familiar, but a good reminder for us this morning on Pentecost Sunday, and that is all wrapped up in one word, near that God is a God who comes near to us. And we are also uh, finishing up with our final Abide Worship Night on Wednesday. So this Wednesday, if you haven't had a chance to be part of uh, one of our worship nights, it's not too late. We'd love to welcome you here to our Walnut Grove campus this Wednesday, about an hour or so of, of worship, uh, prayer ministry available, and as well, just a reminder, prayer ministry, as you've already um, maybe heard, is, is available uh, at any time during the message, um, after, at the front, if you have anything on your heart at all that you want to bring to the Lord and agree with someone else for comfort prayer, that'd be good. So, on our final Sunday, uh, we're talking about God being near. Now, in our weeks previous, we've talked about how to be apprenticed to God in worship through uh, coming with a hungry heart, a thankful heart, uh, perhaps um, coming surrendered or asking you know, to be filled, to be renewed. These are all good postures and ways we pursue God in worship. But I'd like to just um, say that this morning, we are going to focus on how God is near to us. So how God is the one who actually uh, comes near, he adopts us as his children, he um, welcomes us into his family, he's near to us through his Holy Spirit. And yet, I know for some of us, that is not an easy topic to get our minds around, to think about. It's been a struggle for me to think, God, like, are you near? How do I worship a God that's invisible, that at times seems distant? And I've had some of you from time to time and, and uh, just say, you know, my, my relationship with God, it just feels flat, feels dry. There's no, no big things going on in my life, but I just, I can't seem to connect. And my, my prayers just feel like they're hitting the ceiling. So how do we worship a God who draws near to us when these are some of the things that we're feeling? How do we reach and approach a God like that in worship? We're going to talk about that first. And then secondly, we're going to go a little bit deeper and actually uh, try to dig into the question, what does it actually mean that God is near? Like, how is he near? 
How can I experience him as a God who is near? How did he come near? And finally, what differences can that make in our, in our worship? So let's pray together because uh, for some of us, like I said, this may feel familiar territory, but we all need, this is a foundational, um, the foundational piece, I believe, to our worship of God. And as we close this series, let's have hearts that can, can hear from, from his word and from the spirit. Lord Jesus, thank you for drawing each and every person here this morning. Thank you that we're in this space together, that we've already known, experienced your presence by worshiping as, as a church here. And Jesus, help us to understand who you are, that you are a God who's come near. Open our hearts, make our ears listen, and we thank you, God for what you will show us and for who you are. Amen. Okay, there's a popular, well, I don't know how popular, movie out. It's been out for the last few months, and it's called Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. I don't know if many of you have seen it, but I went to see it. I was curious because it's a book, it's actually the movie is taken from a book, from, uh, written by Judy Bloom in 1970. Now, some of you, like, 1970, how old is she? But that book, uh, I was not allowed to read it when I was a kid. Um, it was banned in most school libraries, where I grew up anyway, in the States. And be because it was a book that, you know, uh, that Judy Bloom wrote honestly about uh, uh, middle school girls, maybe age 11, 12, 13, going through puberty. And it was just an honest, um, you know, characteriz characterization of Margaret, who is in great angst because she's not experiencing anything. And um, this causes her a lot of stress. But the underlying theme of the book is actually her confusion about religion. And that is because her dad is Jewish, her mom is Catholic, and while they're not particularly religious, they let Margaret decide for herself what she believes. And so she, she goes on this quest, this, this journey to discover faith, to um, try to experience God. And throughout the um, movie, she begins to pray. Um, her first prayer is this, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret Simon. And then she goes on to say, I've heard a lot of good things about you. And these are tentative, honest prayers of a 12-year-old. And as she uh, you know, begins to discover what different church traditions are like, um, visiting different churches and such, she comes to the conclusion that religion just makes people fight, especially her parents and her grandparents. And so she's just so upset and furious about this, she announces that she doesn't even believe in God. And she's writing a school paper, a project. She writes, maybe there's nobody up there. Maybe there's only just me. And we witnessed Margus praying, though, more than a dozen times throughout this film, and very earnestly, sometimes kneeling beside her bed in these simple prayers. At the end of the movie, after she's gone through quite a lot, she says, are you still there, God? It's me, Margaret. I remember seeing the cover of that book, like I said, and I was around Margaret's age, and I wanted the same. Are you there, God? It's me, Janet. I don't really feel you. I can't see you. 
I have big problems in my family. I don't feel like I have close friends. I don't have a boyfriend. And I just feel super insecure. Are you there, God? It's me, Janet. Now, over the years, into my late teens and 20s, I uh, became a follower of Jesus. And as I continued to pursue and know God, I desperately wanted to feel his presence, to experience him. And I would go up time and time again for like altar calls in different conferences or churches. I, I was constantly trying to explore what's, what's blocking uh, that sense of intimacy with God that I, I yearned for. I seen that other people experience that, but not me. And sometimes I would just give up and then I would read another book that somebody would give me. I would go for prayer ministry, but I was always wondering, maybe not saying it out loud, but wondering in my heart, what's wrong with me? Are you there, God? It's me, Janet. Um, I feel like I'm maybe not alone in that struggle to actually experience that God is near. Now, is it my personality? Is it my upbringing? Well, yes and yes, but still. You know, some heard one person recommend that, you know, before you come to church, you should just listen to really sad music or watch a really sad movie because then you would, you know, it would soften your heart and you would feel like you could engage more emotionally. I'm like, well, that's ridiculous. It's totally fake for one thing. <laughs> but here's the thing. It's taken me a while, but I, I believe I've come to know that the Bible doesn't tell us to live in pursuit of feelings or experiences. Now, don't get me wrong, feelings are part of how we're created, how God designed us, and emotions are a really good gift, we know this. But we don't walk by feelings, we walk by faith. So whether God feels distant or God feels near, this is the amazing freeing thing. It actually, fundamentally, doesn't change anything. And why? Because he promises that he is near. And it's my perspective, I think, that needs to change. See, our perspective can really influence how we see reality. Maybe you've seen some of these kind of pictures, uh, forced perspective pictures, you know, what's really near, what's really far, you know, it's kind of hard to tell sometimes. We know they aren't true, but they trick the eye. And in the same way, we can mistake a feeling of closeness, a feeling of God's presence, when the truth is that God promises this, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, never, never will I leave you or forsake you. Yet we know we're made for relational closeness with God, with others, and it's not uncommon for us to feel like he's distant. In Created to Draw Near, Edward Welch says, to be close to God is certainly a human desire, but intimacy with someone you can't see has its challenges. And intimacy, when you feel a bit guilty, is even more challenging. See, some of us walk around with this residual feeling of, a residual feeling of some kind of like lingering guilt, right? Like, the sense that God is perpetually, slightly disappointed with us all the time. We're never really measuring up, never doing as well as we should be. 
We've fallen into the same ditch one too many times. We've made the same promises or commitment to God, and we've broken them. Um, we feel as if God's patience with us may be just wearing a bit thin. Or he's just, you know, waiting for us to mess up again. So why bother? Other people seem to experience a nearness with God, but we've tried. It's not working. There was a common saying, and I admit to believing it and probably repeating it in the past. It goes like this. If you feel far from God, guess who moved? Have you heard that before? If you feel far from God, well, guess who moved? But God is not a being that can be moved away from. There's nowhere you can go that's away from his presence. David says in Psalm 139, if you have your Bible, you can turn there, but it will be up on the screen. David writes this. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Well, the answer is nowhere. God, you're near. Now, all of us may feel closer to God at one time or another, but those are our feelings. And the truth is that sometimes I can feel closer to my friend. Maybe we've had a really good conversation and we've prayed through something difficult together, but whether or not I feel or not, she's still my friend. And I think the same thing is in our relationship with God. I may feel closer to him when I've spent time with him in the morning or maybe when I'm at an abide uh, worship night or maybe when I felt his comfort in a really painful circumstance. But just because I feel closer to God in a particular moment rather than another doesn't mean that I actually am. See, God's nearness doesn't come in degrees. So what does undergird our foundation for the nearness of God if our feelings can come and go? Well, this foundation is found in the truth that God reveals to us about himself. And through scripture, God continually uh, reveals what he's like, his character, often through his name, the different names that God has is how he reveals himself. Did you know that in Hebrew, there's a name for the God who is near? It's found in Jeremiah 23. God identifies himself, the God who is near. Elohe Mikra. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but that's in Hebrew. Elohe Mikra, the God who is near. It also means the God who is at hand. Yet this is not how many characterize God, especially not in our media or uh, in our world. In 1990, Bette Midler had a hit song. It's called From a Distance. And it goes, I'm not gonna sing it. There's some pastors on this staff that can sing their sermons <laughs> and I am not one of them. But it says, God is watching us. God's watching us. God is watching us from a distance. It talks about the world being a place of no war and no disease and, and only love and unity. And yet we know that's not really true. That's not what our world is like. And God knows it too, but he's watching from a distance. 
He doesn't want to get involved. Maybe he's unconcerned. Maybe he can't do anything about it. Maybe he's just waiting for us to clean up our mess. But he's watching from a distance. And that's a very common worldview of God. But it's the exact opposite of what's presented to us in the Bible. One of my favorite writers, John Ortberg, has written a book called God is Closer Than You Think. And he states this, that there's a primary promise of God in the Bible, a primary promise, one that you'll see from Genesis to Revelation. And it's so important that we get this. God's primary promise is that I will be with you. Not I will forgive your sins or you will have eternal life. Those are awesome promises. But his primary promise from, you know, the patriarchs through the prophets through Jesus to Revelation is I will be with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. The God who is near. Think about it. Even before Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it says God walked with them in the cool of the day. His presence was their greatest gift. And then later, with his people, the Israelites, God's presence could be found with them. Where? In the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting. That's where his presence, by his Holy Spirit, lived with his people in the center of their community. And then when they finally settled in the promised land, King Solomon built a permanent temple in Jerusalem. And in that temple, there was the Holy of Holies. And that was where God's actual presence by his spirit dwelled with his people. And if you wanted to be near God, you journeyed to Jerusalem. You came near to the temple. But only once a year, a priest could enter that Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice for the sins of all the people. And there was this deep longing always for something more. For, for, for God's presence. And one of the prophets of God named Isaiah cried out to God one day, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And God did. Just over 2,000 years ago, God came in the person of Jesus to dwell among us in human flesh. And the apostle John writes about this, John 1, Jesus became flesh and came to make his home with us. God's presence came to earth. No more need for the temple. Jesus was actually the walking around temple of God. God came near. God's love was revealed in Jesus tangibly, up close, because that's what God is like. Some of you may be familiar with the name Father Damien. He was a Catholic priest who became well known for his love for and care for lepers. So he, uh, he left to go live on the leper colony that is, uh, was it Molokai, just in the Hawaiian Islands there, I think right across from Maui. And he, for 16 years, he uh, cared for, tended sick lepers that nobody else would touch. He built them homes and coffins. He constructed schools and he held church services. He gave hope and dignity to families who were devastated by leprosy. Father Damien didn't keep his distance. He got up close. He served and loved until in 1884, he himself contracted leprosy. But he refused to leave the island for treatment. 
Rather, he took on that devastating illness, that disease, until he died five years later, a beloved friend of the leper colony. That's just a small picture of the incarnational love of God in Jesus, who got up close. The love of the Father took on our disease. Our disease is sin. And Jesus bore that disease, our sin, on the cross, in his body. He shed his blood for us so that we could be made clean, so that we could live. And Jesus died on the cross for us to forgive our sin. This, some strange and miraculous things happened. And the historical record actually backs these up as well as the Gospels. But the earth shook violently. Rocks split open. The sun was blotted out. And something else, even more miraculous. See, in the temple in Jerusalem, as we've noted, there was the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was separated from the outer courts and the rest of the temple by a, a huge curtain. And this curtain was as thick as a man's hand, four to five inches thick. It was 60 feet tall. It was embroidered in red and purple and blue. It was this massive curtain. But at the exact moment when Jesus died, the writers, gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and also extra biblical sources all record that this 60 foot high curtain was torn in two from top to bottom at the exact moment of Jesus' death. See, this barrier that kept people from entering the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, was just rent in two. It signifies that there's nothing that can separate us now from God's presence because of Jesus. There's no barrier. There's no residual shame. There's no sin that we can't bring to God, that there's no barrier that us or anyone else can construct that can keep us from the love of God because he wants to be near to us. And we're invited to draw near through Jesus' death and resurrection. God is near. But can you imagine the disciples' like utter confusion? So here Jesus is raised from the dead, and then he gathers his disciples around and tells them, I'm going to leave. Can you imagine how dismayed they might have been? But he pulls them together for a last group chat, and it's recorded in John 14. Jesus tells them, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another Savior, the Holy Spirit of truth, who will be to you a friend just like me, and he will never leave you. The world won't receive him because they can't see him or know him but you will know him intimately because he will make his home in you and live inside of you. I promise I will never leave you helpless or abandon you as orphans. I will come back to you. See, if you've opened your heart to the Spirit, then in a profoundly personal way, Jesus lives in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we see that. Jesus says, I won't leave you helpless. I won't abandon you as orphans. I will come back to you. The Holy Spirit brings Jesus to us. And that's what we're celebrating, Pentecost. Penta means 50. So 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead, 50 days after we celebrate Easter, the Holy Spirit came 
on the gathered believers, just as Jesus promised. You can read about that in Acts 2, just like Tim and Cindy did. Another of my favorite authors, Philip Yancey, wrote a book that I pulled off my, pulled off my shelf and um, just wanted to look at it again because it's called Reaching for the Invisible God. And Philip Yancey uh, says this, no other religion makes such an extravagant claim that the God of the universe exists, not just as an external power whom we must obey, but as one who lives inside us, transforming us from the inside out and opening a channel of direct correspondence to God. And then I love the way he kind of uh, encapsulizes that amazing truth. He says, the God who took on human flesh in Jesus so that we could experience him in our material world still takes on human flesh, our flesh. The Apostle Paul asked the church at Corinth kind of this question, don't you know that God's spirit lives in you? And we could say, North Langley, don't you know that God's spirit lives in you? And why, why this plan? of God for his children, because he wants to be near us. Because God, from the beginning of time, lives in this amazing relational community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Relational, loving, unity, community. And they, God just longs to share that with us, with those he's created, with his children. But this is hard to grasp. I mean, the Trinity is hard to grasp. And I, I'll be honest, you know, until I see God face to face, my human mind cannot understand the Trinity. But just because I don't understand it doesn't mean it's not true. And it's not what God has revealed to us in Scripture. But God longs to be with us just as he himself is. Yet it's hard to grasp. And Jesus, as he taught um, when he was here on earth, he told stories or parables to help people understand this is what God is like. This is what the Father is like. And one of those most um, maybe well-known parables is the one of the lost sheep. And that's found in Luke 15. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. The shepherd in this story is God. He's the good shepherd. He's always depicted that way because the father cares for his sheep his children, each one of us. But like sheep, we wander away, we get lost, we're aimless, we lose where we're at, we think, well, there's a better patch of grass over there, and so we need to be rescued. And the shepherd leaves the 99 and pursues the one. He sees us individually. He sees us personally. Now, does he just give up at some point and say, well, I did my best. No. He keeps on looking, pursuing, until when? Until he finds it. And then what does he do? He brings it home because of his great love. He doesn't, you know, 
tie the sheep up and drag them home and spank them and scold them all the way. No, he puts the sheep where? On his shoulders. Did you know that this depiction of a shepherd carrying a sheep on his shoulders was the predominant image used to identify Christians before they began using other symbols or, or signs like crosses? It was the most common representation of Christ in early Christian art. In fact, if you go to the catacombs, those you know, subterranean passageways in Rome, they found more than 120 of the earliest Christian art of the good shepherd with the sheep. Um, so this is how the earliest Christians understood God, that he was their good shepherd, that they were held close to his heart because he loved them. So no matter how many times you've strayed or how far you've gone, God's love reaches further still. He does not berate us. He does not hold up our sin and our guilt. He, he forgives. He gently welcomes us back, not at arm length. He throws a party. He delights in you. Do you believe that God delights in you? That he throws a party when you welcome back into his presence every single time? That's how he feels about you. So the significance of this parable and understanding the heart of our father, the good shepherd, it really helps me worship. You know, often we do sing songs about our love for God and how we adore him and uh, things like that. And I want to sing those songs with a sincere heart, but deep down, oh, I know how inconsistent I can be and you know, fickle. <laughs> I know myself. Sometimes it's hard to sing those kind of words. But when I am drawn into worship, and the worship is, you know, lifting up who God is and what He's done and how He has, um, you know, died for me and how he has just eliminated any barrier that would keep me from his presence, that I can't be separated from his love, that he has, you know, his, his holiness covers my sin and, and I can be in his very presence, then my heart just like overflows with thanksgiving and praise. It's like I can't help myself because of all that he's done. He's a good, good father. It's who he is. So we're going to end with one verse, Hebrews 10.22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. So those are two things that I can come to worship God with, whether I feel it or not. We worship God with a sincere heart. That means a heart that's open, a heart that's honest, a heart that's like, Jesus, you know everything about me and you love me anyway. That's a sincere heart. And we also come with the full assurance that faith brings. This is where we exercise our faith and say, yeah, I may not feel it, I may not even understand it all, but this is the full assurance that faith brings. God, you love me, you promise to be near me, you promise to fill me with your Holy Spirit, and I can worship from a place like that. That gives me confidence 
knowing that whether I'm worshiping with reverence or thanksgiving or with surrender, whatever posture I'm coming to God with in worship, I'm coming with a sincere heart and I'm coming with a full assurance that my faith has a solid foundation. Listen, we don't worship a God that's distant, a God that's aloof, a God that's just, you know, waiting to see if we'll misstep again. And though we may question, are you there, God? Yeah, the resounding answer is yes. He is, because he promises to be the God who is near. And so as we wrap up this series about uh, being apprenticed to Jesus in worship, yeah, I'm reminded of this phrase that some of you are familiar with. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Do you know that glorifying God and enjoying him forever is really the only thing, the only practice that will carry on right from this life into eternity? There'll be no break in our worship of God as we go from this life to the next. We know and love and follow Jesus. And this morning, if, if, if you don't know and love and follow Jesus yet, it's a great opportunity to do that. Pentecost Sunday, to open up your heart and say yes to Jesus. I want to follow you. There will be prayer people at the front and in the prayer, and the prayer room at the back. But as we go into worship, let's draw near with a sincere heart, with a full assurance that faith brings, because God is near. <laughs>